Welcome and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Culture and Compliance Chronicles, a podcast series that is focused on the behavioral sciences approach to risk management. I'm Amanda Rod, a partner in the litigation and enforcement group. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague, Rosemary Paul. Then we have our special guest today from EY. We're all going to go around and introduce ourselves in just a moment. We all, of course, are dealing with coronavirus, COVID-19 issues in our daily lives. And now more than ever, we think it's important to think about culture, think about how behavioral science theories uh, can help in times of crisis and can help with our culture. We've pulled together a really interesting group of professionals to talk to you today, including those that focus on the theories behind uh, behavioral sciences and some of the academic research that has been done, also bringing a regulator perspective uh, to the discussion today, and then bringing lots and lots of practical tips on how to apply these theories and hopefully some useful nuggets on how, how we can work through the times that we're living in today and as we emerge from this, as, as, as we most certainly will. So with that, I'm going to turn it over first to Rosemary Paul to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I'm Rosemary Paul. I'm a partner at Ropes & Gray. I was previously a senior solicitor at the Financial Conduct Authority, um, and I've got a particular interest in this area because financial regulators have been looking at culture as a priority to achieve compliance for some time. And this, I think, is particularly important at a time of crisis. So looking forward to an interesting discussion. Um, I'll hand over to Katerina Wegman of EY now. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, being here today with you, and uh, I really look forward to our conversation today. Uh, so my name is Katerina Wakeman. I'm partner at EY, um, and I focus on integrity and ethics and how we can measure uh, ethical cultures and how do we with, uh, work with our clients to bring ethical cultures alive. So I look very much forward to being here today. Great. Miriam? Hi. Hello. So my name is Mariam Hussain. I'm a partner in the forensic practice at EY, and I've spent uh, the past 20 years of my professional life investigating major fraud and corruption around the world. So um, I saw, when I saw an article in The Economist a few weeks ago that was entitled, This Economic Crisis Will Expose a Decade's Worth of Corporate Fraud, I can attest to that from personal experience of the previous financial crisis. I think there are things that are happening right now that we could be either preventing or detecting at an early stage to be in a better position when we come out of that crisis. Thanks, everybody. And my name is Melissa Myatt, um, also a partner at EY. Um, I've been working with life sciences organizations for over the last 20 years and really helping individuals and leaders at the headquarters understand what's happening on the ground across their business and the dynamics and the decisions that local leadership teams have to take. And this has become a pretty hot topic currently as each of the countries are responding in their own ways to the the rise of the pandemic and, and what that means in terms of how those companies can keep their own people protected, how they can keep their patients and customers and suppliers, um, you know, 
aligned and serviced and also how they can help support the wider market. So it's raising a lot of challenges, new decision-making questions, and in some cases ethical issues, which it's an interesting question to see those that are coping best, how that correlates to the strength of their existing culture. Um, so it's a really interesting topic, I think, as we move forward, not just during this crisis, but even beyond as we grapple with the new normal that we'll all be facing. Um, and, and I think it's been a really great set of introductions across this group, everyone coming with a slightly different perspective and different backgrounds on this. And as we run through the topics, um, we're hoping to cover not just some of the research and practical issues, but some of the big debates we're hearing in the market today in terms of how to apply and, and how to get the best out of your culture. Um, so if we kick off, we'll start really from the beginning and look at what the research is telling us around decision-making. Uh, so something that most leadership teams are doing on a daily basis now and in, in largely in unprecedented times with limited information. And I think the, the fact that most research shows decisions are not being made based on analysis or the rules um, it is pretty interesting. Um, I know, Miriam, you've done quite a bit of research around this topic. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about some of the things you found? Yes, Maxie, you, you alluded to it about the fact that this is unprecedented times, of course, extraordinary circumstances. So billions of people have been confined to their homes. We're all being bombarded by information. The future is uncertain. But we know from complexity science that under these conditions of disorder, as you said, our day-to-day -day decisions are not based on analysis of the rules or all the information being given. More than ever, we're all making immediate, intuitive, and instinctive decisions. And in an organizational context, the culture will hugely influence those instinctive decisions by every employee. So understanding how culture drives behavior really matters right now. And for some organizations, it might be the difference between surviving and thriving or not making it through, through this crisis. It's interesting, one of the um, companies I'm working with at the moment has traditionally had very much a culture of consultation and mm. collaboration. And some of the feedback I'm hearing from them is, is how cumbersome that's becoming now as they've been working through this crisis over the last couple of months, that decisions that used to take a day are taking weeks. And that sort of culture of consultation has created this real slowdown in decision-making in some ways. Actually, it's interesting because it contrasts directly with a client that we were working with for 18 months prior to this crisis, where the starting point for that work was a cultural issue that they found was, which was detrimental to them, which was an excessive deference to hierarchy. And they were talking about how this was a strength in a crisis, but was holding, holding back innovation and driving low employee engagement and consequently performance. Um, and we worked again with 10,000 people across the organization to get qualitative employee experiences of the culture in a statistically valid scale to, to work out what's the direction in which the culture, they would want the culture to evolve. But I think the key point from, from that story and from your client's story is actually culture isn't, or elements of culture, it's not about having a static approach. It's about how do you make sure that you have a culture that's responsive to a changing environment in which your business operates. 
You know, one really interesting question, I suppose, to think about is in, in, when you have the luxury of time where you're not in a, a period of crisis where you can really think about and assess what your culture is, try to understand what your culture is, what you want it to be, and how to advance it. Uh, that's one situation. And then we're in this situation now where culture is so important and understanding it is so important but we don't have the luxury of time. We, mm -hmm. we have to keep moving and keep making decisions and hopefully do so in the safest way that we can and the most productive way that we can. What, what does the research say or what are some of the thoughts on how to address that? Because there's this push-pull between needing to keep moving forward, obviously, and, and maybe not understanding enough about, about how, how to move forward. Yeah, I would love to uh, piggyback on what you just said. I think this is a, a really important interdependence that you've just pointed out between um, culture and productivity. Um, I think productivity is one of the positive effects that culture can have apart from others like innovation, um, collaboration, um, and engagement of employees. Um, and I think we need to recognize the fact that the resilience of people during this crisis um, while working from home and at the same time fighting also a global pandemic is a huge stress um, in addition to the pressure that we feel uh, when we make decisions like Melissa and Mariam have just pointed out earlier. So I think we need to take this into consideration also when we think about how do we get through this crisis. So um, making sure that people stay resilient um, and at the same time also sensitizing them uh, for the issues that Mariam has pointed out and making sure that we create a culture in which it would be safe uh, to also speak up about those uh, topics when, when they occur. And I think at this time of crisis, um, that is one of the most important topics that, that we should probably uh, watch out for to create spaces where people feel safe to speak about um, the issues that they're facing. Uh, while working from home and having the pressures at home in the organization um, and and then trying to at the same time collaboratively going through the crisis by creating a space where we can talk about this, we can find agile ways of working together um, in which we are more outcome focused and maybe also engage in new ways of working um, and making sure that we create habits um, that are healthy and um, facilitate honest communication about not only process, um, but also topics that might um, help us to overcome some of the risks that um, Melissa and Mariam have pointed out. Just to build on that, on the direct point about what does the research tell us, we know that we've evolved as pattern-based intelligences. At best, we take in about 5% of the information that's in front of us, and especially at a time where there's so much information flying at us that specific point of how do you help people is I think making it simple and salient. What are the key things that, that you want your people to focus on? Um, for one of our clients right now, they, they, um, one of their key focus is just to make sure that their supply chain is moving so quickly that they are extra vigilant in terms of the quality of the supplies that they are taking on board. So they've identified two or three things which is paramount for their organization and for their customers right now. And they're just going with those two or three simple messages across the organization to enable people to absorb the direction and, and uh, implement it into their day-to-day uh, -day working. 
I think this also stands the test in, in, in normal circumstances as well to recognize we don't absorb masses of information. We absorb a small amount and then we match it against the last experience that we have, the latest pattern in our mind, and then we act accordingly. So keeping, keeping the messages simple, especially right now. We've been working with some of our clients as well to think about identifying what those key messages or risks are that they should be focusing on right now, because certainly before uh, the time of crisis, our clients had all worked together to understand the risks that their organization might face, but what those risks are and the priority of those risks obviously have now shifted. And again, we don't have the luxury of time to do full risk assessments, perhaps, but going through and identifying what are the most important things that we need to prioritize right now and and simplifying that, as you suggest, to make sure that people are enabled to really focus on those risk areas is something that I think is happening in real time now, which is a real positive. I think it's particularly important now, um, not least because the further away individuals are from sort of each other working from home in these particular circumstances, the easier it is for them to lose that connection with firm culture and values and let compliance requirements slip or take the easy way out, um, sort of circumventing controls they know to be in place for a reason on the basis that it's just for now where they're, they're having to realign their priorities. Um, and I think the, the point about keeping messages simple and prioritizing them is crucial to, um, to avoid that kind of slippage. I was, I was just going to say the, the interesting thing around this whole point about simplifying is most organizations really struggle to do that when they're not in crisis. Uh, the crisis is actually helping people focus. It's almost a singular angle of focus. Keep our people safe, keep our business running. And I found it really interesting, certainly in our organization, but then I'm seeing it across a number of other companies and you're reading about it in the press almost every day, new innovation, new ways of working, new ideas, new connections in the market um, coming up from people almost having this singular crisis response focus. But there's a huge amount of upside that we're seeing as well with everybody, almost globally, everyone on the same page, maybe for the first time in history. I think that's right. I think there's a global realignment of priorities, and we can see that in the regulatory context as well, particularly in relation to the UK financial regulators, where they're issuing huge amounts of information and guidance do the right thing consider your capitalization consider your employee welfare in the context of paying out bonuses they're emphasizing that culture still needs to be prioritized and um, you know ultimately a culture that supports regulation helps to prevent harm to consumers and markets which is really the the whole point of um, financial regulation and in this context Build on that, Rosemary. I think what's helpful about the guidance is, as you pointed out, is principles-based. Because on the other end of the scale, if, if there are lots of rules being issued at this time, if you over-constrain a system, actually you produce deviant behavior. 
I think that's absolutely right. Regulators have relied on economic tools of influence, so rules and enforcement and fines, and now acknowledging that behavioural levers are, are crucial um, in achieving that compliance and achieving the, the outcomes. Uh, the regulators are quite open about wanting to be focused on outcomes rather than processes. I think that's useful to focus more on outcomes and I think it's also the values based is also really useful because so many siloed responses have been built up over the years. So with every rule or risk area that the regulators point out, organizations have in time tried to create programs and procedures to respond to that particular rule or risk area. And as a result, what you end up with sometimes is a really segmented approach to thinking about whatever outcome you're working towards, which if you're seeking a good culture, you know, building up a, a, a program that has 20, 30 different policies and procedures under it may not ever tie together perfectly to work towards the outcome you're looking at. Um, and, and so I think in some ways this is a time a, a fresh start uh, with permission and even encouragement from the regulators to say, really look at what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to get there and does it make sense or not. Building, Amanda, on what you just said was it'll also be, you know, not just the permission and encouragement from the regulators to think about this from a cultural driven and a, a, a principles based, but the trickle on effect to that is when there is the allegation or suspicion that something's gone wrong, how will compliance organizations, internal audit teams, um, internal or external investigations then assess when, when there aren't these specific rules to measure against, which is the traditional approach? Um, you know, what kinds of new data points or techniques or conversations need to be had with management to assess and understand the process they went through to make the decisions that they did? Um, and, and I think that's one of the interesting things that's now starting to emerge. And a lot of organizations are looking at not only how do they apply some of the cultural theory to, you know, motivating and, and building their teams, but also in terms of assessing, um, you know, the strength of the decision making um, and the outcomes that they're achieving. It's really interesting you raise that because accountability is running through, it, it seems, every part of regulation right now. I think the regulatory environment is such that there's an acceptance that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, certain decisions might not have been made in a particular way. But the the criticality around being able to evidence the process you went through um, so that you can look at it after the event, look at lessons learned, and consider whether or not you'd approach it again in the same way and the same circumstances is really becoming quite key. I'm really interested in this as a topic, and, and I can't wait for more research to come out about the effects of the agile methodology. So a lot of corporates are implementing the concept of agile, which in effect is moving decision-making down to the teams of people who are best equipped with the most information and expertise to make those decisions. So in effect, breaking down some of that classical hierarchy structure. And when you start shifting into that 
agile methodology and way of working at an enterprise level that really puts a shift on that whole accountability point you talk about and, and what historically the regulators have looked at. And whilst I think in some ways companies who have embraced agile are probably better equipped to navigate these uncertain times, it's also interesting to see how that will play out over time with the regulators' perceptions as well. I think that's right. When you're moving decision-making down the chain, um, at least from a financial regulatory perspective, there is still an expectation that the person at the top of the chain remains responsible, understands what's going on, and can be held accountable for that. I think how that crystallizes sometimes in terms of the conversations at board level, my experience is the acknowledgement that one of the key factors that influences how people make decisions is the cultural environment. So what have you done at board level to make sure that there's the right culture throughout the organization and informed yourself that what you think is actually happening is the reality? Sometimes when that's gone wrong is that referencing back to being able to evidence the process, organizations have undertaken your culture change initiatives, which sort of treats culture as an engineering problem where you know there's a cause and effect and the reality of course is that an organization is not a machine it's a complex human system everything is connected with everything else and so many of the connections are unknown um so i'm finding that those conversations around how do we take accountability for the culture of the organization and make sure that we are well informed and ensure that the culture is moving in the right direction is acknowledging that there's some of the approaches that said here's an initiative going from A to B and we'll have three interventions and we'll change the culture, don't work. And you have to start with really understanding the present and the present experiences and the stories of your employees and start from that starting point and make sure that you're driving the culture in the right direction through the interventions that you have as a, as a senior management team. I completely agree. And I think that may be set out in your policy and weighing them up against the way people actually behave. Investors, I think, shareholders, regulators are all looking to see that, that gap narrowed. And to build on that, when there is misconduct, the number of times I've heard, well, of course this happened, but it was one bad apple, one bad apple far away. And it's hardly ever the case. And much more common is that there were individuals operating in a culture and a context which enabled them to justify what they were doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. So in investigating things when they've gone wrong and misconduct, to really understand the root causes of that so that that can be part of the thinking and the policymaking uh, moving forward, the reality of why things go wrong. I really like that because I think one of the questions that people struggle with right now is if culture is constantly changing and we know that certain interventions may or may not work, why would we spend as much time and energy on focusing on understanding our culture and testing our culture? And especially right now when there are so many competing demands, why should this be a priority? And I think what you just said about really understanding, using things that go wrong is an opportunity to understand a culture and to think about interventions that may address whatever has gone wrong. Uh, that's a real value add, and that's something that isn't soft and isn't something that feels like a proactive measure that might be a nice-to-have. That's almost a must-have because otherwise you can't 
design effective remediation, and you can't make sure that you are operating in compliance with law, but also in a way that maximizes your business. Uh, so I like focusing on sometimes identifying a problem area and making sure you use that to try to understand culture and to try to make modifications where necessary. Because otherwise, you will end up having the same issues time and time again. So if you think you're saving time and effort but not, but not fully focusing on this, it's actually an illusion. It goes to the point that you make that, you know, it is quite rare to have a genuinely isolated bad apple. In fact, you know, most people will adapt to the, the values of their group and their ideas of what is right and wrong will be governed by that rather than what's written in the policy. So getting to the heart of sort of how people behave, what influences them and what they see around them, what behaviours are being rewarded, um, who do they see as the people in power with influence and how they behave and lead um, become crucial to sort of avoiding that bad behavior and achieving compliance. I would say it's not even just about bad behavior. It goes back to the conversation around productivity and, you know, where you have weak or bad cultural dynamics, you also get stagnation, lack of innovation, people who don't work well together, um, and you see that really just affecting the overall success of the business or parts of the business because of that. You also have lack of uh, ownership or individual accountability in those situations, and that's particularly challenging, I think, when you're trying to decide you know, who holds ultimate responsibility for certain decision-making in those cultural challenges everybody kind of points their fingers at each other, and that's, that can be a real struggle. I just wanted to add that I think ever since the financial crisis, we can acknowledge the fact that the importance of the human factor and the importance of how people behave um, is really at the center, also the conversations that we have uh, with executives. And I think it's also um, due to the fact that we can see a real paradigm shift in in investors' behavior and also in how talent and also the the new generations to come into the workspace are making decisions about um, where they want to work and investors um, in turn also where they want to invest their money. And I think this really has changed the conversation as to how culture is being institutionalized and how executives are shaping the conversations inside their organizations and making culture a real contributor to their business. And what I think is fascinating is, based on um, what all of you have just said, I think root cause as well as um, operationalizing uh, culture is becoming increasingly important where the holistic perspective on uh, human behavior is helping us to also in the future uh, support individuals in their decision making. Because I think it's important to emphasize that most people want to do a good job. Most people are inherently good and they want to come to work and want to do a good job, even now in crisis. And I think what we see in most of organizations, and Mariam, I think your experience in investigations is probably um, the most important in, in that context. Um, many times it's not a conscious decision that people are um, misbehaving or are making a bad decision for the business. Many times they're legitimizing their decisions because it's been good for the company or they were so much under pressure 
because of the way they're being incentivized or on the way that goal setting um, is being uh, operated in an organization. So I think we need to acknowledge that most people want to do good um, and we just need to enable them um, through culture to make the right decisions. It's just they make inefficient decisions, um, as we know from research. Just following on to that, I, I think especially in remediation decisions, a lot of times remediation decisions are really individual focused or employee focused on what is the right thing that we can do to make sure you know this employee's behavior is changed, whether that is you're going to coach them, you're going to train them, that all the way up to you know severe discipline warnings and, and p potentially separation from a company. And, you know, we do see over and over again in investigations having to discipline employees for the same issues and thinking about and keeping in mind that people generally are trying to do the right thing and that sometimes maybe we should be spending more time focusing on the cultural issue or the bigger picture or what is actually driving people to make these decisions when we're thinking about remediation instead of being so focused on individual employee uh, remediation. It's obviously an important part, but I think it shouldn't be seen in isolation. It should be seen in context uh, with the bigger uh, cultural drivers as well. Just add to one yeah. point to that, is that quite often the, the dynamic that's there is actually a conflict of interest that that employee and potentially groups of employees have been put in a position where there actually is a conflict of interest between what they've been asked to do and the other messages that the organization has given them about ethical behavior. So that root cause analysis needs to identify what is it that may have been relevant to this employee, but also to these groups of employees generally. I would say there's been a significant lack of focus on root cause and it's manifest in you know, Amanda, like you've said, around focus on remediating the decisions made by an individual as opposed to the context in which they were working. But it's also just created loads of bureaucracy and layers and layers of controls and organizations who have faced a lot of allegations or investigations. You can see that in the heaviness of their you know, internal controls and compliance and monitoring regimes they have in place. And the problem is those internal controls now get in the way almost of reminding us that we have to ask the individual help speak to them about what has driven them to a certain point or what might be contributing to the situation that they're in and the decisions that they're making mm -hmm. because they're obviously a huge source of information. And if you're not careful, an investigation can be so focused on identifying what the wrong of what happened instead of really understanding why, uh, why, and, and the why is obviously critical. That wraps up part one of our three-part discussion with Melissa, Miriam, and Katerina from EY. Please stay tuned for part two, where we will discuss measuring culture, specifically how to drill down on the information we need, and using data analytics as a tool. We'd like to thank our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to our Culture and Compliance Chronicles podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discussed, 
please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. <music>